You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome to episode 11 of season one of our podcast. Hey, we're glad you've joined us and we're just going to invite you as a listener, if you've not had an opportunity to do so, it would help us tremendously before you get going here, just to take 30 seconds and leave us a review on iTunes. Or if you'd really be willing, we'd be grateful for you to retweet this episode or post it on Facebook and help spread the word to anyone you think might benefit from this. Today's guest is Jay Pathak. Jay's the lead pastor of Mile High Vineyard Church in Arvada, Colorado. Jay's actually a really good friend of mine. It was about seven years ago that I was stuck in my leadership. I kept finding myself doing the same recurring patterns, and I, I called a leadership mentor of mine, and he said, oh, you got to sit down with a guy named Jay Pathak. And so not only will we get into leadership anxiety and what makes Jay anxious, but I wanted to ask Jay about a particular aspect of family systems theory called differentiation. Here's how Jay defines it. So I'd say something like the ability to define who you are, where you end and others begin. So to be able to have clearly defined values, um, behaviors that dictate to you how you interact in the world and yet remain connected with others. Yeah. So let's jump into that because I I first uh, was taught differentiation 20-something years ago. I've now been teaching it for a while. And in my experience, in, in all of the tools to manage anxiety or all the family systems tools, it seems to be the hardest one for people to begin to get their mind around. They, what I find is I'll, I'll teach it, and then a year or two later, someone will come back and say, ah, because they've either done their own study or they've tried some things. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to when you first encountered this idea. What was going on in you where you needed help? Yeah, I think I, I found my way into this, this conversation or this thinking when I first started to read and think about codependency. Okay. And why were you reading and thinking about codependency? Because I'm a pastor. And <laughs> it just comes with a job? Is that what you're saying? Well... I find that almost everyone I've ever met that either finds, finds himself in any kind of helping profession yeah. <laughs> has some form of feeling better about themselves because they're helping other people. It's a great drug. I've not tried, <laughs> I've not tried many drugs. Actually, I've not tried any illicit substances, but that drug is really something. Well, and it, and it tends to be formed from the way that you found yourself in your family system. Okay, good. In my family system, I learned how to manage my mom's emotions, my dad's frustrations, and I became astute at being able to analyze how are they doing, how are they feeling, how are they feeling about me, about the world, about life. And if I interact in this way, it will help kind of balance the family. So you've, you've actually raised quite a few concepts here that particularly for our early listeners, they're not going to know. Mm-hmm. So differentiation, we're, we're going to dig into. You in mention, you, you, you in passing mentioned over-functioning. Yes. Let's just cover over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic real quick Great. here. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, in anywhere that anxiety is present in our lives and other people's lives, and as we are, as our capacity for differentiation is challenged, we have to do something with that anxiety in relationship to other people. We don't know how to remain connected as we're anxious. Yeah, so you can only be connected to your anxiety 
but you can't be connected to that and people. You've got to choose. That's same, right. Same with God, right? You can't be connected to your anxiety and to God at the same time. That's right. Yeah. And so you start behaving in certain ways to manage that. You can project. That's one really easy way to start to feel better about people. I'm only anxious because you're a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And if you weren't such a bad person, I could feel better. We see this in marriage. We see this. We can see this culturally, you know, in politics. So you can project. And one of the ways projection works, which we won't talk about today, I'm sure we'll talk about someday, is how we'll start to triangle in other people. So mm -hmm. we can feel connected to other people against someone. One of the fastest ways to feel connected to someone is just pick an enemy. Yeah, team up. And find, and find friends yeah. who don't like them to yeah, be either. great. That's the way you feel connected. And, you feel, and I also think... Uh, it's a way for someone who doesn't feel powerful to feel powerful. Mm -hmm. You just kind of gang up. That's right. Yeah. Yep. But the under-functioning, over-functioning dynamic. Yeah. So project. You can distance. I'm just going to disappear from this person. Again, somehow they're making me feel anxious. Therefore, I'll just leave them alone, which, of course, can be cut off. And then there's over and under-functioning. So over-function is... I'm going to do for you what you should do for yourself mm -hmm. so that I can feel better so about me. Sophisticated form of self-righteousness. That's right. Yeah. I'm in control. I know what needs to happen for you in a way that you either don't know or aren't willing or aren't, this is the thing we tell ourselves, are unable yeah. to do. If somebody is listening to all this, I think there's a couple of things going on. People may be listening and saying, it sounds like you guys are saying don't care for anybody. Mm -hmm. But I just want to clarify that response is what you were describing as detachment. That's not what we're talking about. Yes. I think what you're getting at, Jay, uh, and there's obviously a loaded statement. I think what you're getting at is if you really want to love your wife and if you really want to serve this church and actually care for people, you're going to work on yourself and, and regulate your own anxiety. And that, will, that act itself is actual work that actually loves and serves others. Yes. Can you go into that a bit? The more you work on you, the more you can change how you relate and how people experience you. And then that's replicated through a system. Yeah. It, it infects the culture. If, yes. If you're healthy, your health infects what can be an unhealthy culture. Yes. Well, and again, it also demonstrates then the ability to, when you learn new things and you embody them, uh, those things can be transmitted into the system as opposed to kind of externalized, trying to create made-up things that will make everybody behave differently. Yeah. So sometimes what I've run across is when we talk about anxiety, a lot of leaders will say, well, I'm not very anxious. And I'll have to say to them, well, I experience you as That's very right. anxious because they think of anxiety in a very clinical medical term. Yes. What are you talking about when you talk about anxiety? Well, it'd be any form of of emotion that overwhelms your capacity to think and engage. Yeah, and some people, particularly Type A leaders, mm -hmm. are operating out of way more anxiety than they're aware of. Exactly. So, if one of our listeners is doing that, what is like the first step into this world of differentiation? How do they begin to notice it? Well, one thing I would say. I often don't notice I'm anxious right away. Uh, good. Yeah, that's so good. So one of the ways I notice I'm anxious, at first especially, is in the rearview mirror. I can look back on a conversation I had a week earlier, a day earlier, and you start to notice it backward before you notice it in the present. Okay, let's, let's stop there. You're going to get anxious in the moment. 
the, the, the conversation or whatever it was passes and then hours or days go by. Maybe even weeks, sadly. Yeah. And you're still thinking about it. Yes. That might be a sign. It's a sign. And yes. then eventually, not just in the moment, but you can start to notice that you're anticipating yes. an upcoming thing and you're churning. Yep. Okay. And it's all growth. And, and, and one of the signs for me, when I start to think in either or black and white okay. thinking, one of the sheer signs that you're anxious is your thinking goes down and becomes dichotomized very quickly. Okay. So you'll often hear people say, here's the deal. Either they're going to perform in this way or they're going to get fired. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's pretty dichotomized. I mean, it's right, left. When you can only see two doors. And that's the an, doors are extreme is the other extreme. thing you're saying. That's right. That's an indicator immediately. I'm anxious right now. I'm anxious. Who cares what they're doing or not doing? I'm not doing well in my own capacity to notice what's happening. I need to slow down. I need to take a breath. I need to ask what's going on with me right now. Because I think we can all notice moments where we're not anxious. And when we're more relaxed and present and not reacting to our own anxiety, we can see all those options. Yeah, I know in my own life, I used to believe if, if I, let's say I had a staff member that did something inappropriate, I need to address it. I used to believe I have to do this right away. Yes. And I came to learn, actually, I have to differentiate. I'm going to take the time required to manage myself, get all the heat out of my emotion. And it was always a much more productive meeting. Yes. If I could approach it non-anxious. Yes. And so part of what differentiation is, I think, is, is learning to pay attention to your own heightened state. You mentioned the extreme doors, the black and white. I think another sign is when you start using superlative language. Yes. They always, I never. And, and those are these triggers. You're like, hey, wait a minute. Something's going on. Yes. And then you can de-escalate and then you can actually have quite a productive. So wouldn't you say... Even for like a type A driven leader, they're listening to this and they're thinking, I mean, Stephen Jay, it's sensitive, need to get over it. Wouldn't you say the most productive way to lead is this way that we're talking about? No doubt. Productive because you're not wasting time flailing at random solutions. And I do believe this is, skill is a strange word. This is a way of being that you can become. Yeah that requires certain kinds of practice. At first, there can be a perceived lack of efficiency. But over time, uh, I I think your efficiency and your productivity goes through the roof. Because, frankly, when people are around anxious leaders, they don't feel heard. Right. They don't feel respected. Everybody knows it. That's right. Nobody's saying it. So... One way, if someone's struggling to begin this path of differentiation, if they're a brave leader, one way they can learn about their own anxiety is they can ask the people who work for them, hey, how do I, how does my anxiety affect you? Yes. However, if you are a jerk leader, your people are not going to tell you. If, That's if right. you've already broken trust, yes. you have to first repent and acknowledge that. And then they may or may not tell you. But I think for a leader who's listening, you, if you're not sure how your anxiety shows up, you can ask other people. They will tell you if they feel safe. Well, and you can build, I mean, if you really want to do something brave, you build an anonymous feedback loop oh, okay. of you your go. team and just say, 
Do you feel heard? Do you feel understood? What do you think you know about me that I don't realize about myself? We'll do an exercise. I'm not saying you have to do this up front, but after building a lot of trust, we do an exercise with our whole staff. We all sit in a room. You write everybody's name on the list. We start with me. And we ask every person, what's the thing this person does that best serves our team? Meaning not their job specifically, yeah. but our team. The, the way they are, what they do. And what do they do that's the greatest detriment to our functioning together as a team? And we start with me. And everybody goes around the room, and they have to say out loud in front of everyone else yeah. what they wrote down. Yeah. And the only response that you can have, whoever's being addressed, is thank you. I'm going to consider this. And my promise to you is the next time we do this exercise, we do it three times a year, you will say something different about me. Now, here's what's fascinating about doing that. It does two things. One, it creates a certain kind of feedback. Uh, the leader shows I'm leading this yeah, way. Yeah, you're going first. I'm first. And um, it gives people personal responsibility for the impact they're creating, even if it's not intended. And what's fascinating is you do it in a room. No one's consulted with each other, and they tend to say the same thing. Yeah, that's everybody knows. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Even if they've not compared notes. That's right. Because that you, you started that at the beginning of this when you talked about even your own family. You Everybody knows the temperature of the room. Yep. They just don't know what to do with what they know. That's right. And differentiation really is a way to bring it to the surface, to name it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, if you can't laugh... You're probably anxious. Yeah. If you can't make fun of yourself, like be self-deprecating, you're also probably anxious. Anxiety thrives in serious yeah, earnestness. Yes, right. That's yeah. right. And so to be able to go, what I don't want to create is some kind of fantasy land here. You might make the same decision. Yeah. You might do everything you were gonna do. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm not saying somehow this changes yeah. your your outcome. Your outcome might be, you might fire somebody. You might say, I'm sorry, this just isn't, you know, you're yeah. doing this wrong and you need to change it, whatever. It, does, it may not even remove any of the intensity of the outcome. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, in other words, this isn't like some kind of like, oh, and then we're all going to wear funny hats and, you know, nobody ever gets fired and we never have a real conversation. Yeah, yeah you're, not off, you're not offering the guarantee of bliss. No. You're, you're saying this is a way through any leadership yes. situation. That's right. For you. Yeah, for you. And you're always going to be anxious. Yes. It's just your capacity to manage it. That's increases. right. And I think that's a really important thing you just said, which is sometimes when we have these conversations, people say, oh, so there's a day, someday in the future, right. that I don't experience any of this. Yeah. That's incredible. And you're like, uh, uh, nope. Nope. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not saying. Now, you could do that. That requires moving to Montana. Yeah living on some kind of comp compound all by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> e eating buffalo. That's right. It feels, it sounds, it sounds lovely. It, boy, there's plenty of days. Although, <laughs> and, as much as we're joking, um, you do read the monastic guys and they're talking about the petty yes. stuff going on that's in the right. monastery. So no, that's right. No so escapes. There's no way out. All right, so we have to uh, boil this part of our episode down and we will be talking about differentiation a lot in the podcast. This is our first run at it with Jay. So you've given us a few nuggets. You, you've, you said, you know, if you're trying to figure this out, you can pay attention to the relationships in your life and the subtext of anxiety. Mm. You've told us that um, uh, you can pay attention to when you're either using superlative or extreme language. That's an anxiety response. I think that's gold. Mm. This idea that notice the way you're thinking and speaking. And then you can, you can pay attention to when if somebody's not happy with you, or even if they're just not happy, 
how are you feeling and how are you different than them? Mm-hmm. So, for example, maybe low-hanging fruit would be if it's too close to home to start noticing your own relationships, you can spy on others. Yes. And just start noticing relational patterns between any two people. And I think every one of us knows that person. Let's take the opposite of what you said is the person that walks in the room and everyone relaxes. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows somebody when they walk in the room. Yeah. If they're not okay, it's not okay that you are okay. That's right. And we've all been in teams where if one person's not there, it's like, man, that was so much better. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's one way you could notice it. Thank God. I'd never say it out loud because it doesn't sound very nice, but I'm so glad he yeah. or she wasn't here. They weren't available Ooh, to be at our meeting. Good. And as a, as a leader, as a friend, whatever, to notice that and go, huh, that means a couple things at once. One, um, they aren't aware probably of how they're impacting us. And two, we're, able, we're not able to be ourselves in their presence. What does that mean about us? We're reacting off of them. And if you really want to test, just notice Thanksgiving. Yeah. Notice Christmas. Family of origin. I mean, I, I, anyone who's married has experienced this. You go to the first time with your spouse's Thanksgiving, and they become another person in yeah. front of you. They yeah. literally change. Yeah. You watch them change. It's like you turned into a 12-year-old boy. You just turned into a nine-year-old girl. You became helpless. Like, yeah. you And of even... course, you're also saying you and I change. Well, listen, we're not above this. No way. Yes. Yeah, so your spouse is also able to watch how you change. Oh, my, sure. my parents are coming to town soon. You know, so we, <laughs> start, we, we start mapping it out. Yeah. Well, and I think this is a vital point because you also mentioned earlier this idea of impact versus intention. Yes. I think that's another way you can start differentiating is allow people to tell you the impact regardless of your intention, no one is accusing you of being an evil person. Right. They're just trying to help you see how you come across when you're anxious. Yes. So therefore, if you can be curious, this is a gift. These people are offering you a gift. That's right. If you can operate non-defensively, you're, you're a learner. You're able to learn about That's yourself good. through there's things that people know about you that you don't yet know That's about good. yourself. Yeah, curiosity and humor become tools that's right. And we'll chase differentiation through the next couple of years because it is a long journey. But people who want to explore more will have show notes of the authors you referenced. But man, you can go on Google and you can type in differentiation and there's all kinds of stuff on what it is. And like you mentioned very early, your own values. That's one way to differentiate is what really matters to me. Yes. And in the, in the face of anxiety, who am I and how do I show up? And All right, let's turn the conversation. Um, this is the questions I ask every guest. What what kinds of things make you anxious? I always tell my guests, mm. no need to be exhaustive because we all have 60 to 80 things. Yeah. What kinds of people make you anxious? Uh, from my own family story, my own sort of forming, and even what I do by way of career, uh, I do pretty well with peers. I mostly feel threatened and anxious around authority. I have all kinds of pain around feeling controlled, manipulated, neglected, pushed aside. I'm not saying anyone attended, intended that ever, but yeah. it is the meaning I made to manage my life in certain ways. Anyone that I feel like is trying to take control over me, 
and is imposing their will upon me in a way that I'm not being given a participating interaction. So they're just saying, this is what you've got to do now. You become reactive. I become reactive. That's well, good. Different kinds of anxiety show up for me quickly. So anxiety, uh, uh, you know, we say it starts first in the body. If people are trying to learn to get a grip on when they're anxious, and we say it, it starts in one of three places, and it often ends up in all three, but it mm -hmm. often starts. So for you, is it a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? Where does it begin? Tightening gut to racing heart to spinning mind. I usually feel it in my trunk, in my stomach and chest. Every, I, I think one of the biggest sources of anxiety for a leader is making a mistake, recovering from a mistake, putting yourself back out there. My theory is leadership is ultimately vulnerability. And so your mistakes are public. I'm not talking the mistakes that end up in jail or that massive impact of morality. Yeah. I'm talking about just everyday leadership mistakes. Give us a mistake you've made and what happened in you under the surface when you made that mistake. Well, I think the, the, the kind of mistakes you're talking about are when they're acute, meaning they happen in a moment. Yeah. Um, that's one kind of way that happens. But then there's another way that's chronic. Like I've been making that mistake steadily <laughs> sure. yeah. in a way that it changed the whole system. And I think the one I'm probably would be the most culpable in and had the greatest effect was a chronic series of mistakes that mostly related to what we've spoken about earlier, where I had built a staff culture, hired staff, that was all relating with me as the guy that could fix and change all things for everybody all the time. And the church had grown in that. We were getting bigger. We were having, and yet there was this never-ending kind of sense of frustration that people had with me and I had with people. As I started to do this work, the embarrassing reality of how our whole culture was strung together with anxious overfunctioning. And when I began to shift that, mm. the level of resentment that that drew out of people that I was responsible for. It was my fault. Yeah. I yeah. did it. You'd led them down this path and now you're changing paths. And they're going, this doesn't feel good. Yeah. And this is not what I agreed to. That actually resulted in having to let go almost half our staff at once. How did you forgive yourself for that mistake? That's a great example. Well, um, the way that I work through it, forgiveness did not come first. The way I worked through it was to maintain connected. With these people? Yeah. So the people we let go, I'm still in relationship with 100% of them. And by the way, when I would go to meet with them, they didn't want to meet with me. For sure. Or they want to meet with me <laughs> for very specific reasons. For sure. <laughs> and I had to say, you know, you're right. And I'm sorry. And so through that process, which honestly was very painful. I mean, it was embarrassing. It was awkward for everyone involved. Um, I grew a lot because sometimes the fuel for change is getting in touch with impact. And that we are forgiven, there is grace, but uh, it doesn't take away the responsibility to clean up our messes. I think it's hard to feel anxious and feel unconditionally loved at the same time. Yes. And I think for our listeners, uh, I like to help us get in touch with um, love. Mm. 
when in your life do you feel most fully loved and embraced? The practice that I've formed that helps me do that is solitude. But there's some bad news for the good news. The bad news is this, is that when I go to practice solitude, for me it's four or five hours of silence alone, usually walking. The first hour or two is more anxious. Because as I'm alone with myself and God, I notice stuff under the surface that's emotional that I've been avoiding. And I almost have to like present that before God. It almost, it's like almost like a picture. I literally have to like hand it with my hands and say, I don't know what to do with this. And there's layers of it. It starts showing up. And as I do that, and I finally get still, I find that God is near and with me and He loves me. And it's visceral for you? It's visceral. It's physical. Um, but it's slow. It's almost like someone puts like a sheet on me and then maybe a little, a light blanket and then a, a heavy duvet and it's slowly. But I had to kind of unfurl all the other stuff first. Yeah. And that's become a practice every day that's smaller, but at least once a week in the practice of solitude. And that's, I got to be honest, I mean, I am as extroverted as anybody you'll ever meet in your life. It is, ex it is, I'm not joking to say it feels excruciating, especially at first when I started to do this, because it felt a little like a detox. But as it's become a daily and weekly pattern of examination and inviting God, um, it's had a huge impact it's on life. Life-giving. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Last question is just what is an activity in your life that makes you feel fully human and alive? Uh, I mean, I love to play golf. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but golf is a helpful... Say, why does that sound ridiculous? It's well, because, answer. yeah, I, it's great answer for me. I, I, I played a lot of competitive sports growing up. I didn't play golf competitively. So in one sense, this doesn't feel like a real sport in one sense. In another sense, it, focus, it forces me to focus. If anybody's played golf, you don't play golf well. If you're trying hard, you have to stay calm and steady. It rewards disciplined action, you know, and behaviors. And you get to be with a friend or two or three for four hours with little intermittent communication. And most men won't find a way to be together for four hours. Uh, you can't, most men won't call their buddy and say, do you want <laughs> I, I want to hang out for four hours <laughs> yeah, with you. That's right. Wow. Come on over. They'd be like, no, uh, but hey, let's play golf. Sure. Yeah. Um, and there's appropriate amounts of distraction and engagement. And so it's a real gift. You love the whole me. rhythm of it. All of it. Yeah, everything, everything about, about it. it. That's right. That's I just great. love it. Yeah. Great. If you found the podcast beneficial, you can help us out by subscribing to make sure every episode is delivered straight to you. You can also take 30 seconds and leave us an honest review on iTunes. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.